0: For those of you who are new or haven't been here for a while, we've been in 1 Peter. We've been studying Peter's letter uh, to Christians living in northern Asia Minor. He's writing them this letter. He's helping them understand who they are before God, right? Their identity before God, so they can stand firm in it, live the way that God has called his people to live in a world that is increasingly hostile. Chapter 4, somebody say amen. Because if I, like, you know, I love... All sixty-six books of God's Word, but man, it feels like we've been here for years. So we're almost there, and as you know, as much as I'm um, trying to say that that I'm ready to to do something else, to study something else, to read and preach something else, um, God has been teaching me every every week um, as I've prepared, as we've discussed during the week, and as uh we've had some other people come here and preach and this wednesday night i shared with the people who were here about a man named sean saviano does anybody here just if you were here on wednesday night do you remember me talking about that kid he he had a i mean a tragic upbringing just a terrible upbringing as a young man and he he made a bunch of terrible decisions as a young man um and I really don't know how to say it, he just had a bad life. Somebody gave my number, said the guy that, that uh, gave me your number said that you can help me. I said, I can't help you unless you can answer this question, uh, who is Jesus to you? He couldn't answer the question, gave me a bunch of do's. Jesus isn't a bunch of do's and don'ts, right? He, he's somebody that we can know, that we can trust, that we can believe in and rely on, amen? So he said, I don't know. And I was like, well, I can't help you with anything else. I'm not a life coach, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, I'm a pastor, and before that, I'm a Christian. The only thing I can help you do is understand who Jesus is to you. I can help you answer that question. And so we had a conversation. Uh, this was Wednesday or Tuesday this week, and I, I didn't feel like I made much progress, but the good news is that God doesn't need me to be present or to be incredibly effective for him to work, amen? Right. so Friday... Um, Friday, I was, I was talking to Sean again, and I was like, before we hang up, where, like, who is Jesus to you? He said, I don't know. And so, I started sharing the gospel with him again, and by the grace of God, he prayed to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior that night. That's, that's good news, right? Yeah. Um, and earlier that day, Travis and I, we got to bless somebody. Where are you at, Travis? We got to bless somebody. Uh, So thankful for Travis, so thankful for all that God is doing here. Um, We were supposed to have a baseball tournament yesterday, but it got rained out then and didn't end up raining at all. So I'm tired for no reason. I had a great, relaxing day yesterday. I, I don't even understand it. All right, so in the Army, we had a phrase. We had a phrase, complacency kills. Complacency kills. You know, as soon as I joined the Army... That's all you would hear. Complacency kills, complacency kills, complacency kills in basic. All of my training at Fort Benning before I got to my unit. Then I got to my unit. All of our training there, complacency kills, complacency kills. Driving it into us, keeping it in the front of our mind. Then on all of my deployments to Afghanistan, that was the phrase. It was on our laptops as screensavers. It was in the bathrooms. It was in our command centers. Like It was everywhere, everywhere. And Generally, in the military, complacency, what it means is It's getting comfortable, letting your guard down, right? Losing awareness, not being careful anymore. And I want to help you just see what I'm talking about. So we have a a graphic for you. This is what complacency looks like. You see the gazelle? There they are. the, The gazelle and the lioness are at the watering hole. And the gazelle is very complacent. Let their guard down, became comfortable. Unaware, and the lioness is surely not complacent. Very much aware that the gazelle is right next to it. Now, I've never seen that picture uh, when I was in the army, but that would have been incredibly helpful because he, there are two kinds of like signs in the army. They're either super creative or they're the dullest things that you've ever seen. Um, so, either way. But that phrase... That phrase, complacency kills, it was a, it was a call to remember, to, a call to to be um, aware, to be on guard, never let it down, right? We were in uh, in a dangerous place surrounded by dangerous people doing dangerous work. We could not let our guard down. We could not become complacent because the enemy that doesn't, didn't, or didn't, excuse me, that didn't wear uniforms were out of Afghanistan now that didn't wear uniforms, blended into the population and would certainly take advantage of any opportunity to capitalize on our complacency and kill us uh, if we gave them that opportunity. So that short but powerful phrase, it was a call to a mindset. It was a call to a way of thinking that would shape our time in not only training, not only in Afghanistan, but our entire military life. And I believe that in this passage, the first six verses of chapter 4, here in 1 Peter, that Peter is calling his readers and us, all who are in Christ, to adopt a mindset, to arm ourselves with a mindset that will influence or shape the way that we live the Christian life. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them with me, please, to 1 Peter 4. We'll read verses 1 through 6. When you have it, say amen. Peter writes this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. There it is. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Amen. So we only find one command in this passage. One imperative or that verb of command. One. And it's arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. Arm ourselves with what, Peter? With the same way of thinking. As who, Peter? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Christ with the mind of Christ, the, the way of thinking that Christ had. That, so that phrase, arm yourselves, it has military connotations, right? It, it described elsewhere, soldiers getting ready to go into battle, arming themselves. But what I think is pretty interesting here is that Peter doesn't want his readers to be confused. Christianity is not a playground, it's a battleground, amen? We talked about it last week. We went into you know, the, the really weird, like, Conversation about the spiritual realm, the coexisting one that the Bible like very clearly indicates exists all around us, it, on, like coexists, not in some separate weird place, but exists currently, like ongoing, like we can't see it, touch it, taste it, feel it, which is why us here in the 21st century West, we ignore it, but it's very real. It was very real to all of the writers of Scripture, so it should be very real to us, amen? So Christianity is not a playground, it's a battleground. And we're at war with the flesh, right, that wants us to be happy without God. We're at war with the world that wants us to fit in without God. And we're at war with with Satan and his demons who want us to be religious without God. So Peter calls us to arm ourselves, but not with, like, physical weapons. He's not saying, you know, form a Christian militia, and be ready to fight. No, no, no. He says to arm ourselves with a mindset, the mind of Christ. And, and what, what? What is he talking about? He's been talking about for the last several chapters how Christ suffered, how Christ's suffering is an example for our suffering, how when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was accused, he, he did not accuse in return, right? He, he suffered without sin. Right, so... Peter, he's calling us to adopt this same mindset. And here here it is, if if I could just summarize it for you. Be willing to suffer rather than sin. Be willing to suffer rather than sin. Now that's important. It's important because Jesus, he consistently and deliberately chose to obey the Father's will in his life and ministry. Consciously, deliberately, intentionally chose to obey the Father's will during his life and ministry. Amen? Okay, that's important because there are some who would say that because Jesus is fully God, he didn't need to choose. Like he had no other choice. But we ignore the fact that Jesus was not only fully God, he was also fully man. Amen? That's important that we believe that doctrine. Fully God and fully Man, So this, he had to to consciously choose to obey the Father's redemptive plan. Intentionally, consciously, deliberately, right? And we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Look with me, Matthew 26, 39. It'll be on the screen. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my Father, if it be possible, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, But as you will. That's interesting, isn't it? Deliberately chose suffering rather than sin. What would happen if Jesus said, Nope, let this cup pass from me. My will, not your will. Didn't go to the cross. Didn't obey the Father's redemptive plan. Didn't go through with his calling, the purpose that he was sent to earth for Well, we'd still be in our sin, wouldn't we? And he would have abandoned or forfeited his purpose. So his his full humanity meant that although he was tempted to sin like us, he constantly had to decide to obey God's will for his life and suffer the consequences or for his ministry, his purpose. So thankfully... Thankfully, Jesus chose to suffer rather than to sin. This is why the author of Hebrews can write this in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So like Christ, who is determined to obey the Father, Who chose to suffer rather than to sin. Peter is calling his readers and us, all who are in Christ, to be willing to suffer rather than to sin. Have this mindset. Because we know and we've seen in Jesus' ministry that that the cross precedes the crown. Now, Jesus wasn't teaching, or excuse me, now Peter wasn't teaching anything new here because Jesus taught this earlier. Look with me, Luke nine twenty-three and 24. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then again in Matthew 10, 38 and 39, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now when Jesus, when he spoke about taking up the cross, his listeners knew exactly what he was talking about, about being executed on the cross. They knew exactly what he meant, that they were to confess Jesus as Lord and obey him no matter what, even if it meant being persecuted to the point of death, even if it meant their excruciatingly painful death on the cross. They knew what he was talking about. Right, so Peter is calling us, his readers and us, all who are in Christ, to have the mind of Christ, to be willing to suffer rather than to sin. So we, we see a, a very difficult more I guess complex statement here in the second part of verse one right since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking here it goes for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that's weird isn't it this can get really fun but we're not going to do that this morning right the point is that believers who suffer it's not that that they've reached a place of sinless perfection. It's not that they're walking on clouds and they have halos over their heads just because they've suffered, right? They're not perfect. No one ever is perfect in this life. Amen. Amen. Okay. So he's not saying that just because you've suffered for the name of Christ now you, you you're no longer a sinner. Like you're just you got it going on. Heaven points all day. Your credit's good there no he he's emphasizing that those who suffer unjustly for the name of Christ those who would rather suffer or those who would suffer rather than sin those who would suffer rather than disobey their their lord and savior those who would would rather be made fun of, beaten, beaten, spit on, mocked, whatever the case is, even to the point of death, like their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those people have clearly drawn a line in the sand, and they're saying that I'm not going back to that life of sin. I would rather suffer than disobey my Lord and Savior. That's what Peter's saying. Not sinless perfection, but that you've drawn a line in the sand and said, I'm done with it. I would rather obey And suffer for it than disobey it shows a commitment to a a new way of 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 living the way that jesus bled and died for It, it shows a commitment to that way of living and so often we have the choice don't we to take the path of least resistance or to choose the path of obedience which is obviously much more difficult to navigate much more difficult to endure, isn't it? Or is it just me? I mean, because like most of the time, with just about every decision in a in a day, Monday to Monday to Friday, then Saturday and Sunday. Even here, yes, I ha- I'm at a fork in the road in the road constantly. Obey or disobey even if it means suffering, even if it means being disliked, even if it means being talked about, even whatever the cost. We are so often at the fork in the road, but Peter wants us to be obedient, even if it means suffering. And it demonstrates that we've given up the life of sin. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It means that we're committed to living that way. So verse 2 Verse 2, it's looking forward, right, into the future. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that's your life, your life here on earth, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. Uh Uh-oh. So these human passions, right, what are they? They are the the interests, the desires, the cravings that result from our sinful human nature. Now notice with me that passions, they're plural, right? Right? So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, plural, but for the will of God. Passions, plural. There are multiple human passions that are pulling at us, grabbing at us, just trying to win our attention and devotion. But notice here that the will of God is singular, unified, righteous. It, It is singular and beneficial for all who follow it. You can't live for the human passions of the world, of our flesh, and for the will of God. At the same time, it just won't work. And let's just demystify this, the will of God, right? Because you talk to some people and, well, you know, I just believe God's leading me to do something that completely contradicts his word. No, he's not. I can assure you that. Let's talk about the will of God. In context, in context of what Peter's writing about here, because you see that phrase over and over and over and over again in, in the Bible. So let's talk about, simply put, in this context, the, the will of God, living for the will of God is to spend the remainder of our lives in the pursuit of holiness. Willing to suffer rather than sin in this context context. Paul says pray without ceasing for this this is the will of God. Uh, He says elsewhere your sanctification for this is the will of God. Be uh, grateful in all things for this is the will of God. Like it's everywhere. In context pursue holiness. Be willing to suffer rather than sin no matter the physical cost. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see that there's a bit of a reaction when that happens, right? When, when we are willing to suffer rather than sin, when we draw that line in the sand, we're not perfect, but when we say, I'm, I'm willing to suffer rather than sin, there's a reaction. Look with me at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Let's stop there. Verse 2, remember it looks forward. Verse 3 looks backward, to the time past, referring to our time before we came to Christ in saving faith, right? So what do we call those? The BC, right? Before Christ, right? So my days when when I was dead in my trespasses and sin, I'm describing BC, before Christ. Now, as a Christian, right? Before Christ, he's pointing out the BC days. He's calling them back to the way that they used to live before they were in Christ. And he's sarcastically pointing out that whatever time his readers spent doing these things that the Gentiles do or did was sufficient, right? You had all that time before you came to Christ to live in sin, to wallow in sin, to do whatever the people around you are doing. You had all the time before you came to Christ, and it suffices, it's sufficient It's good enough, right? It's good. You don't need any more of that. Draw the line in the sand. Live the way that the Lord is calling you to live. That's what he's saying. There's no more win in Rome. There's no more living to be accepted. We'll get there, sorry. But this is relatively simple to understand. You had the time before you came to Christ. I don't care what age that is because He doesn't make it a point. I don't care when you came to Christ. The time is past. It was sufficient to be living the way that the Gentiles do, living the way for the values, for the passions, for the desires, for all the things that they want to do. And he, and he briefly describes it here, right? This isn't a comprehensive list. He lists five vices that Gentiles do that characterize their former way of life, their B.C. days, before they came to Christ. So let's look at these five terms, but let's notice something at the onset. All of these five vices here have in common a lack of self-control. All five of them. So look with me. Sensuality, it means any behavior lacking moral constraint, particularly sexual acts and acts of violence. Passions, it refers to all human impulses that tend toward immorality. However, here, most likely, it refers more specifically to excessive indulgence in sex or other acts of self gratification. Drunkenness, it means wine bubbling up, literally. And here it refers to habitual intoxication from any substance, whether that be alcohol or any sort of narcotic or any other illicit substance. There's no getting away from it. God made weed, so I get high. It's good. No, it's not. (laughs) Orgies refers to participating in wild parties of excessive food. I know, be careful here. Wild parties of excessive food and drink and sexually immoral behavior. Drinking parties, getting together just for the sake of getting drunk. Lawless idolatry refers to the immoral, passionate worship of false gods. Now, we can see the lack of self-control in here, right? But what I don't think we see when we read this, or maybe it's not at the surface level, um, and, and maybe you understand it, I think that you guys do but I, I have to say it, these things that he lists, they're so ingrained into the culture, the first century Greco-Roman world. They were so ingrained, so normalized in the Greco-Roman culture that, that to not do these things would have been so just weird and foreign it would have been like you and me you know we're in class or we're at a ball game and we're singing the pledge of allegiance or the national anthem everybody you know stands up puts their hand on their heart whatever the case is and we see somebody not do it we'd be like what's wrong with that guy you know you'd probably like pack your stuff up and maybe like move over to the other side of the stadium or something that's how that's how weird it would be if, if somebody didn't engage in these things, these five things at least that we just talked about, it would be that noticeable. One commentator wrote this, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry may well have characterized family religious celebrations, official meetings of the trade guilds, and civic holidays. It was that ingrained and normalized into the culture. That's what I need you to understand. It wasn't some weird taboo. It was in just like the Pledge of Allegiance. So that's why in verse 4, Peter says that there will be a reaction, right? With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So they're surprised when you don't join them, and they malign you. Let's look at the first. They're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Right, because Peter's readers, first century Christians in northern Asia Minor, no longer joined the Gentiles, no longer joined the people around them in the same flood of sinful living that they used to, the people around them were surprised or they thought it was strange. Right, They didn't join them, they didn't plunge into, they didn't run into or participate in the same immoral kind of living in acts that characterized their lives before, characterized the culture around them. Now we're reminded as spiritual sojourners and exiles waiting for our heavenly home that if we want to make a difference, we do so by being different. Spiritual sojourners, exiles, we're visitors here for a time. We're waiting for our heavenly home. We don't, we don't have the world's values, customs, norms, and practices. We don't share those any longer. Heaven is our home, so we would live differently. Amen? Amen? So we make a difference by being different, not by blending in. And it would be so easy to get up here and talk about all of the things that are wrong in today's culture, but I think that you're very well aware, right, are you? But what I need you to hear is we are not called to blend in. We're called to stand out, not arrogantly, not boastfully, not for any sort of pride or merit or worth or anything else, but because we do not belong to this world. So if you want to make a difference, you have to be different. So that first reaction, they are surprised when you don't join them. And then secondly, they malign you. Right? That is, they, your friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors, they slander or defame you, they speak evil against you, or, or uh, those Christians who do not run into the same flood of debauchery, Right, the, the same type of sinful behavior, they're surprised and then they speak against you, they, they make fun of you, they mock you, they go behind your back and talk about you when you don't do it. Now this is so weird, I was having a conversation with our sermon application team on Friday, Friday morning, and I forgot who exactly said it, but either way, it was like, when has has doing good been a problem? Like, why is that a thing? Why is it because I, I don't want to engage in, in in excessive drinking that I'm a buzzkill? Why is it that I don't I don't want to go and, and and like in the army? I'll just I'll share with you in the army. You know, we'd be up for. Long amounts of time. Um, Up in Dahlonega at the ranger camp there, before I got out, we'd be up for uh, like 36 hours. 36 hours, didn't sleep, and then everybody would come back and we'd go to the like little restaurant bar thing. It's called the overhang if you ever get a chance to go there. Great food. You'd get like two big uh, glasses of of beer. That's what everybody would do. After 36 hours of sleep, I have to be back in, in 12... In that time, I have to be a father, a husband, a, a person, a Christian. I have to do all that stuff in that time. So you want me to to not only stay up, but then have you know consume alcohol, which you know excess two is like you're doing really good if you stop at two, anyways. And then you want me to go and do all those things. There's no way. Oh, well, you know, Donaldson, he's a, he's a Christian, he's a nerd, he's no fun, he sucks, and all these other things, and obviously, that's like the, 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 uh, the PG version of what they said, you know, because really, deep down, like, they were like, I mean, and it, and it, could, it can hurt if we're not armed with this mindset. It can hurt. It can sting. The very people that you would fight for, that you would die for, are the ones making fun of you. The same people that you know their wives, you know their kids, you know their families, you know their situation. You've helped them through some of these things, and then they turn around just because you won't go have a few drinks at the bar with them? Now, maybe for you it's not that. Maybe for you it's something else. But either way, we need to have this mindset because it's clear that Peter's telling us it will happen. They will notice. They will be surprised, and they will speak evil against you. And like he's done several times in this letter, Peter, he turns our eyes towards the final days, towards the last day, because guess what? I know it looks like unbelievers are... are, are winning this game. I know that they're popular. They're trending. They're whatever you want to call it. They're fitting in. They're getting all the money and success. I know that it looks like that that the way that they're living has no consequences in this world, but guess what, Christian? They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Do you see what Peter's doing? I know, I get it. Like, don't worry, arm yourselves with this mindset that you would rather suffer than sin because it, it it's not gonna get you anywhere. The present circumstances are not the final reality. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So that word, give account in the Greek, it means to pay back, to pay back. They will pay back him who is ready, right? Not just to Oh, God, you know, this and that. You know, you, you, you created me this way, so, you know, like, that's why. No, no, no. They're going to pay him back. They're going to pay him back. They're accruing a sin debt. Those who live now for human desires in verse 2, those who live in sensuality and indulge in the same flood of debauchery, verses 3 and 4, and insult believers are amassing a sin debt to God that they will spend eternity paying back. It's, it's sin. That's what God does when he judges sin. Now, sometimes in Scripture, phrases like the living and the dead, it can refer to someone or a group of people's spiritual condition, right? Dead in sin, alive in Christ, spiritual condition. Here, he's talking about people who are actually living in, in the flesh, right? Like they're alive, like you and I are right now, um, and those who are actually dead. So everybody, everybody, there's no one who is going to escape God's judgment. Right? And the Apostle Paul, he draws, this, he draws this out so, he depicts it so graphically, uh, describing the severity of unbelieving persecutors' judgment. Look with me, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. What's going to happen if that sin debt isn't paid for? What's going to happen to those who have to give an account? I don't like it, and I know that you guys don't like it either, but this is God's will. This is God's righteous and just wrath. He's paid the debt in Christ, and all who come to Him have that debt paid for. Come to Him by faith. Or don't be confused about the consequences. Now, in the early church, there were questions about whether believers who had died had missed the Lord, uh, missed the Lord's return, had missed glory, if they had missed heaven, if if they weren't going to be in heaven. This is why Peter, in verse 6, writes this, For this is why, here's another complex statement, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, literally dead, not spiritually, not like, <laughs> it's complex. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. The gospel, not to graves, not to people in the grave, not to, like, we're not pre- uh, preaching at tombstones. People don't get a second chance, right? Hebrews says that uh, it's appointed for man to live once and after that is judgment, right? So you get one life. You either receive The free gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of sin through Christ Jesus. Come to him by faith, believe in his death and resurrection, or you're dead. And we know the consequences. We just read it. So if he's not preaching the gospel to dead people, they've had their opportunity. But these are people he's talking about here. These are the people who in their lifetime, they repented of their sin and they believed in Jesus Christ by faith. And they've since died before he returned and by the time that Peter wrote this letter. So what he's trying to do, again, is he's trying to encourage his readers. Yes, these believers have died before the Lord's return. But don't be discouraged. Death is a doorway into the Lord's presence. Even though they're dead in the flesh, even though they may have been persecuted or judged by unbelievers the way that people do is what he says... They're alive in the Spirit the way God is. Which is what we just saw last week. That, Peter, or Peter, that Jesus, even though he was dead, he was alive in the Spirit. Amen? So he's saying that, that death is a doorway into the Lord's presence in the Spirit. If you are in Christ, that reality is true and it is encouraging. Because guess what? If we would rather suffer than sin... It doesn't matter what the the world brings. It it's painful, it's hard. I know it, but guess what? If death is the end of suffering, it is the end of sin because we know we're going to be in the Lord's presence. What a victory it is. What a victory the Lord won. So here's Here's how we end this morning. I think it's Do you have this mindset that you would rather suffer than sin or are you trying to blend in? Because if you want to make a difference, you have to be different. Right? Does anybody notice? Does anybody ask why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Or do you just run with them, plunge into the same flood of debauchery that they do? Because I know sometimes I can be involved in that, but Brothers and sisters, Peter is calling us to make a clean break with sin. So let's make that today. I'd be happy to pray with you up here this morning if you want to make that clean break with sin. But don't be confused. We are not called to blend in. We're not called to live in sin. I don't care what that sin is for you just because it's not one of these five things if it is against the will of God. He says, live for the will of God. Spend the rest of your days as a Christian living for the will of God. Let's do that together this morning. Let's start that this morning. Because we know people are going to notice. The people who need, who we love, who we care about, who we want to see so desperately come to the Lord in saving faith but they will not notice if you look like them. Let's pray.